Good morning. My name is Marcus. I'm not wearing a name tag, and that was Marcus too, so if you're confused about that, um, it should be easy to remember. So today, um, I've been asked on, uh, I've been asked by Lauren to speak on the message of why did Jesus come? So today's the, um, I actually looked into this, so it's, you know, we talk about the second advent. Well, it's actually still the first advent. It's just the second Sunday that we're celebrating the first advent because the second advent, the second coming, is yet to come. Um, Advent, of course, means the coming, in anticipation of coming, and we're looking forward to the coming of the Lord again. But we want to talk about, during this season, anticipating Christmas and celebrating the time that we can look forward to um, the celebration of Jesus coming to earth the first time. Um, Last week we heard Steve talk about um, how Jesus came to reveal the truth. I'm going to move to the middle a bit because I feel like I'm favoring one side and I don't want to favor one side over the other. Um, Jesus came to to reveal the truth and to reveal the truth about himself. And uh, this week we want to talk about how Jesus came And the reason for coming is to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, Jesus himself, in fact, said that he wasn't just a regular rabbi, but that was his purpose, was to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, So for our Bible reading this morning, um, there's a lot, actually. (laughs) And um, some of it I've printed out on on my iPad, and some of it I just want to read right from the paper. So Matthew 5, verse 17 is our, is our um, key verse this morning. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And the other verse is Luke 4, 43. And again, Jesus said, but I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And elsewhere, we read also in Luke 24, I'm just going to read here, and he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Um, Let's just pray. Lord, I just uh, thank you for a beautiful time of worship this morning and thank you for this wonderful time where we can look forward to celebrating Christmas and and the promise that you brought to earth, that you've set us free from our slavery to sin, Lord, and um, that we have a hope in you. Lord, I pray that for every heart this morning and every mind would be open to receive your word, Lord, and I pray that you would speak through me to um, listening ears and to hearts that are ready to receive the word. I pray this in your name. Amen.
So we'll start with the prophets. Um, of course, even in some of the texts we just read here, it refers to the law and the prophets. And so um, it's important to consider that the, the Jews had the law and the prophets, and sometimes they're referred to as one and in, in the same, but there's the portion of the, the old scriptures that are the law, and then there's the portion that are that are the prophets. And, and the law, of course, would be the law of Moses, and the prophets would be... Uh, uh, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Amos, and all these uh, prophecies that had predictions and, and, and speaking truth um, to, to the nation of Israel. When Jesus came, he fulfilled both the law of Moses and the prophecies about himself. Um, first, I want to start with the word come. It says Jesus came, and I think it's important to consider just that word come. Right? It wasn't like he was already here, just some fellow who just happened to stumble upon the greatest thing in history. He came specifically. For example, in Mark 2, verse 17, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Matthew 10, 34, again he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. John 6.38, he says, I have not come down from heaven to do my will, but the will of one who sent me. So not only did Jesus come, but he was specifically sent. Again in Mark 9, verse 37, when uh, the children are coming to Jesus and the disciples are trying to rebuke them, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me uh, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And of course, there's one verse that we all know, John 3.16. God so loved his only begotten son that he sent him, right? So God sent specifically, he sent Jesus to the world and Jesus came. He was sent for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And I just bring this up because I think if you went, you know, if you went down to the mall or to the street corner and you asked the average person on the street and said, Hey, what, you know, it's Christmas, and what do you know about Jesus, and, you know, what do you, what do you say of Jesus? I think most people would say, yeah, you know, like, I think he was a good prophet, and he was a wise teacher, and he was very charismatic, and, and he gathered a following, and, and, you know, he was a, maybe he was trying to overthrow the political thing at the time. He was an insurrectionist, that's right. He was trying to, you know, bring in this new kingdom, and, and there's a fallacy out there that says, well, Jesus was just this guy who just happened to be from the area and he sought to sort of insert himself in some of these prophecies and said, oh yeah, hey, I'm from Judea and, you know, I can preach and I can, I can, I can try to be this guy who tries to match these prophecies. But in fact, um, there's like, 300 prophecies all through the Old Testament, even in the New, that, or not in the New, but that, that foretell the coming of Jesus. And it's just virtually impossible for someone to insert themselves into that role to pretend to be that, that person. Um, so, you know, as we explore the Old Testament, and it's amazing, I mean, we look at these old scriptures, right? And I thought, this is amazing. We're reading stuff here that people, you know, two, three, four thousand years ago had access to. They're reading the same books. I mean, can you go to the library nowadays and, and get a book that people 3,000 years ago were reading, right? It's, it's, it's actually pretty amazing. Um, but if we go right back to Genesis, Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? So there's a first glimpse right there that there's one who is going to be coming to do something amazing. Also, I think it harkens back to that verse that I just previously read here where Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Right? And that's a little bit of a challenging one at Christmas time because we think it's all about peace. But Jesus came to bring a division between good and evil to separate those who follow Christ, to separate those who follow the devil. And so even there in Genesis, we get an early glimpse of that. Jesus says, he, you know, it's a glimpse of Jesus being the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And uh, it's a glimpse between the, the battle between Satan and Jesus. We see in Micah 5 verse 2, and there's, this is one of many. We heard some, uh, Sam read some this morning, but there's so many of these verses. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Right? It predicts that Jesus will come from Bethlehem, from the clans of Judah, which is uh, interesting. We'll... we'll Get to that in a moment. And one who will be a ruler over Israel, right? Some of them thought that Jesus would come as a king, as a, as a literal king on a throne, but Jesus had a different kind of kingdom. Um, and of course, uh, another verse that we often read at Christmas time is Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. And of course, we know this is exactly what happened, right? If we read the Gospel of Luke, which we'll probably be reading again when we have our Christmas celebration, we'll be reading that exact record. that The Lord sent an angel to the virgin and said, you will conceive a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Another prophetic scripture, Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So the stump of Jesse, what's all this about, right? We were out the other day cutting down our Christmas tree and we were looking at a lot of stumps. And uh, Jesse, of course, was the father of David, the great king of Israel. And that was the start of the dynasty. There was David and then his son Solomon. And so this was the, the era of the great kings of Israel. Well, that kingdom ended. It got cut down. And the Israelites had this kind of attitude of defeat. Man, that was good back then in history, but now it's all over, right? And this predicts that out of the stump, and I don't know if you've ever cut down an alder tree or tried to, they don't cut down. You can cut them right down to the bottom and a shoot will come out the side. And this is similar to that, right? Out of that stump of Jesse, out of the root of Jesse's kingdom, a little shoot will come out. And uh, this is symbolic of Jesus coming back. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus can be traced all the way back. If you read the beginning of Matthew, there's a very accurate record of the genealogy all the way from Abraham. And it even says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? It skips the whole bunch of those generations. I mean, they're all there. But it, in the end, it says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We also know the story about the wise men from the east. And... Uh, of course, there wasn't three wise men. We know there was three gifts that they brought. And they brought gold and they brought frankincense and myrrh. And 
I don't think we really know how they chose those gifts. I don't think they bought them up, you know, because they were on sale on Black Friday or something, right? Um, but they knew. They were wise men. They studied the scriptures, and they knew that a king would be born, a king of the Jews, and this was a significant event. Significant enough that they would pack up all their stuff and very expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and probably an entourage of a bunch of people that would travel with them, probably a protection detail, because you're not going to make this big trip and you know succumb to robbers or whatever. Um, but they brought these gifts. And these gifts are symbolic because the gold represents royalty, right? It's, it's, a, it's a gift fit for a king, Jesus being the king. And this is a baby they're bringing these gifts to, right? Maybe they had no idea uh, the significance of these gifts, but they came there to worship him. They brought gold. They brought frankincense. Um, frankincense is a sap that comes out of the frankincense tree or bush, and they dry it, and you get these little dry crystals, and you burn them, and it gives off a beautiful incense aroma. The significance of that is they would use that to consecrate priests in the Old Testament. There's a lot of uh, symbolic reference to frankincense used as a, as a purifying ritual to consecrate the priests. Again, this speaks of Jesus' priesthood, right? It's a prophetic event to, to point us towards Jesus' priesthood. Already for this little baby in the manger, right? Um, the third gift they brought was uh, myrrh. Again, it's a, it's a resin that comes out of this tree. And... Uh, Google's amazing because you end up learning things that you weren't expecting, right? It comes, you have to tap into the heartwood of the myrrh tree, and then the sap comes out like red blood, like little red drops. Is that significant? I sure think so, right? Again, that myrrh is a bitter, uh, a, a bitter um, fragrance, a bitter herb that symbolizes the bitterness of Jesus' death. And, uh, and crucifixion. So again, symbolic, already pointing forward to, to Jesus as king, as priest, and as his, as his death. And of course, um, we could go on. Like I said before, there's approximately 300 or more of these references that all come to the, that all point to the coming of the Messiah. So if anybody says, you know, Jesus was just the guy who was already here, and just started preaching, and he became great, and he's a great prophet, and then he died, and now he's gone, and we just chalk him up to all the other great prophets. Uh, you can tell them that they're, that they're, they're wrong. Um, especially at the Christmas story, we see um, the fulfillment of the prophecy, born of a virgin. Um, and then the wise men of the East, they came, right? And so they came, and they asked Herod, uh, hey, there's a king of the Jews. Where's this king of the Jews? Because we've come to worship him. And Herod, um, his unofficial title was king of the Jews. He was a Roman uh, governor of the sort, but he was assigned to be the king of the Jews. And he was extremely paranoid that there would be another king to come to usurp him and, and overthrow him. So he had uh, the Pharisees and, and, and uh, the, the preachers at the time consult the scriptures and said, where's this king that's going to be born? And they said, oh, um, yeah, it's gonna be, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judea, uh, referencing to Micah 5, verse 2, right? So Herod took this so seriously that he sent them there to find this king, to worship him because he wanted to really get rid of this king. And um, when he couldn't find King Jesus, he had uh, all the two-year-old and under male toddlers exterminated, murdered, because he wanted to assure that this king wouldn't survive to, to overthrow him. 
Meanwhile, though, God had brought his angel in a prophetic dream to um, Joseph, to Jesus' father, and told him to escape to, to um, Egypt. So, again, there's a prophecy, uh, Hosea 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son, right? It's already looking forward to that, to that time. Um, and there's another one that says uh, in Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more, right? That speaks to this, to this extermination of all these little toddlers. I mean, can you imagine, right? Soldiers going house to house, killing these little two-year-old underboys. And um, that's what this reference is to. Now, the connection between Bethlehem and Ramah and Rachel, um, I don't know if we want to get into that this morning. They're connected um, historically, and so if you want to look that up. But I think most of the people at the time would have understood what that meant. Um, so the fact is the predictions of the coming of the Messiah and the events and circumstances around his coming, they're woven through, woven through the Old Testament. And the ancient Jews would have understood um, what that meant. In fact, the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to this coming Redeemer who would fill, who would fill this role. So Jesus came and he fulfilled the prophecies, but he also came to fulfill the law. What is a law? Right? Anybody here had a run-in with the law? No one's going to put their hand up, right? A law is like a set of, set of rules or ordinances that, that are decreed by a lawgiver and that everyone is under the, uh, under the control of that law and the law is enforced by those who have the authority to enforce that law. And so it might happen, you know, one day you're driving your kids to school, you're driving to church and you catch a tailwind or something, you go a little bit faster than the speed limit, right? And he with the authority to enforce the law, an officer of the law pulls you over, right? And so his obligation is to follow the rule of the law. And thank goodness, hopefully we live in a country that follows the rule of the law, right? And so he has to follow what the law decrees and issue you a fine, right? You can't say, hey, um, can I wash your patrol car? Or can I you know, do some litter duty at the side of the road to clean up? Or is there any other option? There isn't, right? The officer of the law has to fulfill that law. Um, if there is another option, just let me know. We'll talk about the service after. Cause <laughs> I'm kidding, right? Um, but you're subject to that law. And similarly, if you've ever built a house, um, there's a building code, right? You have to follow the law of the building code. You have to bury this pipe this deep, and you have to insulate the walls like this, and the electrical conduit has to be like that. You have to have a bathroom over here and a bedroom over there. And the building inspector comes, and he checks off all those things and makes sure that you've fulfilled that law. And Marcus probably knows a lot about that, being a plumber, right? You have to get all those things done, and when you've fulfilled that law, the building inspector comes and says, this law is now complete. Here's your occupancy permit. You can now live in this house. You're no longer subject to this old law. Here's the new law. Welcome to the freedom to live in your new home or, or to sell it on the market if you're, if you're a builder. And, and so we're bound by laws and the laws have consequences and they have to be followed to their end. The Jews of Jesus' day 
We're under the law of the Torah, and the Torah literally means the law, um, which is also, there's another word called the Pentateuch, which is a Greek word that means the five books, and it's literally the first five books of the Bible. So we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, when I grew up in Germany many years ago, in the German Bible, it says Moses 1, Moses 2, right? Those books are all attributed to Moses. And so just like we have Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2, right? So they consider those five books, the books of Moses. And the Jews recognize the Torah as the law given to Moses by God himself. So in Genesis, for example, it starts with God making a promise to Abraham. And he makes a law, right? He makes a rule regarding circumcision and being set apart from other nations. In Exodus, God has instructions or a law for the first Passover. And again, if you read that, right, so the Jews are in the land of Egypt. They're exiled there in slavery. And God's about to bring them out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land. And uh, Pharaoh has, or Moses and Aaron have struck out with Pharaoh nine times. There's been all these plagues. And there's going to be this tenth plague that's coming. And God says, the angel of death that's going to come. Every firstborn is going to die. But if you follow this rule, these laws, you will be spared, right? So God sets out very specifically, you're going to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, the first Passover lamb. You're going to take this lamb and you're going to prepare it a certain way. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorposts, not just on the posts, but on the lintel. So symbolic, you got wood going up like this and wood going across. That reminds us of what? The cross, right? Already there's symbolism there. And interestingly also it says, of this lamb that you prepare, make sure that none of its bones are broken. And again, later we will see that when Jesus was crucified, characteristically a crucified person would have their bones broken, but Jesus did not have his bones broken. So that's an exodus. And there's also more laws about, you know, going through the desert and how they would gather their manna and how they would build the tabernacle. And it's also, of course, will be where the Ten Commandments are given to the Israelites. In Leviticus, uh, it covers the tribe of Levi. And so we're just going through the five books here, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus covers the tribe of Levi. These would be the tribe uh, of the 12 tribes. That This is the tribe that the priests would be coming from. And it just talks about how they would be consecrated and what they would have to wear and all the sort of processes and rituals they would have to go through, how they wouldn't be ordained and so forth. Again, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. And there's many rituals designed just to set the nation of Israel apart from their neighbors. Uh, Book of Numbers is named after a census, but there's even more laws added for the Israelites to prepare them for the, uh, the conquest of the promised land. And then the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means second law, was kind of like a refresher course. It was given to them again. By this time, the Israelites had been in the desert so long enough that some of the first generation uh, or some of the, the second generation had been too young when the first law was given. So they had, it's almost like they needed a, a bit of a refresher course. And so these were the five books of the law given to the Israelites. And it was given to the nation to set them apart from their neighboring pagan um, uh, neighbors. And so if we look back at that time, right, there's lots of these, um, we talk about the Canaanites and the Philistines and pagans, just idol worshipers. They were worshiping graven images 
they, they were polytheists. They were worshiping a God for this and a God for that and a God for the other thing. Um, many of them would sacrifice their children um, and had no respect for human life. And so God came along and said to the Israelites, I want you guys to be different. Don't be like those guys. I'm setting you apart. And a lot of the law was there to actually preserve and honor human life. Um, so the Mosaic law can be broken down into uh, a moral law and sort of a, a ritual law, right? So the moral law would be about like don't steal, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, and so forth. It was more, and and a lot of that still is in our legal system today. Um, and and in fact, a lot of those laws, the moral laws, were again to honor the sanctity of human life, right? Don't sacrifice children. I mean, that wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, but it was all about preserving and honoring human life. Don't steal from others. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Honor the other human, right? Um, and even the, um, the laws to do with, with, with purity and washing of hands, and there's laws dealing with um, how to deal with body fluids or contaminated garments and mildew and all those things, right? Again, for the benefit of the Israelites, as, for their health, um, and that would also preserve human life. There was also the ritual law. Um, and again, if you read through the Old Testament, and we could probably spend a week here going through all that. Um, I don't know, maybe one day we will. <laughs> um, there's, there's so many rituals that God prescribed for, for the priests to go through and for the nation to go through. Certain ways of atoning for certain sins. Um, there's a certain sequence of events, certain ways that um, an animal needed to be slaughtered. What kind of animal needed to be slaughtered? Where to sprinkle the blood? And do you leave entrails in? And do you skin the animal? And so forth. And all of these laws uh, were stipulated. Um, they they were there to set the people apart and to show them also that the consequence of their sin required the shedding of blood. And only the priests could go to the special place, to the tabernacle. You couldn't just meet God anywhere. The priests had to go to the tabernacle. The priests had to be prepared a certain way. The sacrifice had to be prepared a certain way. And there was a certain sequence and certain prescribed way of doing things so that you could atone for your sins or for the sins of the nation. The purpose of these laws was to show the people that God is perfect and holy, and he doesn't tolerate any sin. He doesn't tolerate any impurities. And it exposed the sin in the people because no matter how hard they tried, they could never, they could never meet up you know, and fulfill all these laws. They could, never, they could never completely follow all of these laws. And again, when the law was broken, the consequence was, was death. And God, by his grace, didn't command the death of the person but he offered a sacrifice, right? There was a sacrifice, there was an animal, an innocent animal had to be brought in, a valuable animal had to be brought in. Animals were kind of like the currency of the day for, for most of these people, right? They were valuable, there was a cost to it. And so, you know, can you imagine this goat or a pigeon or a bull being brought in and sacrificed there, right? And you're seeing this animal dying and you're going, you know, that's for me. That should have been me, right? And so it was this reminder for them that they just couldn't meet up to the law, but there was a sacrifice made there in their place. Through the shedding of blood, 
they were made at one with God. And so that's actually where we get the English word atonement. You know, we always say it like as atonement, but it's actually at one meant, right? It was made to make people one with God. The Old Testament is about God wanting to have a relationship with people. That includes us, right? But through our sin, that relationship's broken, and he made a way for that relationship to be restored. The law was a blessing um, to those who observed it, both intrinsically, like I said before, if you live in a society where people don't murder and steal and commit adultery and all these sort of things, it's a better, it's a better society. If you follow the rules of, of uh, hand-washing and so forth, there would be benefits with less disease and illness. And uh, we also know that the nation of Israel, when they obeyed the law and they, they followed only the Lord God and stayed away from the idols that their neighbors worshipped, there was peace in their land and God blessed them with military success and vice versa, right? So King David wrote in Psalm 1, he wrote, Blessed is the one who does not walk with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That tree is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And so clearly for David, in his experience, the law brought prosperity and it brought benefit to him. But again, there's the other side here because the law was almost impossibly difficult to follow, right? And I'm going to guess it probably took on a life of its own. Um, previously, I, you know, when I, I think I first introduced myself here a couple years ago, I, I said I grew up in a church in, in uh, Germany and it was very legalistic. And so a lot of the leaders of the church would would take the law and they would they would you know i don't know how they did it i imagine they'd sit in the back room and they'd say well what about skirt length you know like do you think it's like two inches below the knee or three inches or should it be like three inches on saturday but four inches on sunday right and so you know they literally um i don't know if they had a book written down but they would just continue to refine and to make these laws more and more uh, detailed beyond what the original intention was, which is just, let's say, modesty, right? And so, and there was kind of this enforcement where they'd go around and say, oh, you've got too much makeup on and your skirt's too short and your hat should be turned the other way, Andrew. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding, right? But the point was that when humans take on a law, it, it can take on a life of its own. And um, interestingly, you know, again with the Torah, the Jews would have the Torah, and so a little bit of research I did here, so they also had the Mishnah, which is the rick- written record of the law. Then they had the Gemara, which are the commentaries on the Mishnah. Then they had the Halakha, which is the detailed description of the Gemara, which is the commentaries on the Mishnah. And then the Talmud is a summary of all the previous summaries. So the summary of the summary of the summaries, right? And the point being, and some of these weren't uh, necessarily uh, fully written at the the time that Jesus walked on the earth, but some of them are in in development. And so the point being, going beyond the law and trying trying to create more effort of their own to please the Lord through following the laws in even more detail than he originally had intended. 
as humans, we just want to show that we want to, we want to do the work, right? I can do the work. I can show God how perfect I am. It's my effort. And I think that's part of the, the human condition. And, and that's certainly what, what these guys did. Um, it's no surprise that, you know, the Bible so often mentions the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And it's, it seems like when you're reading the New Testament, it's like they pop up everywhere. Oh, here they are and here they are, right? And they're following Jesus along. They're always trying to get him in these gotcha moments. Ha, hey, you guys picked grain on Sunday. You didn't follow that law. Hey, you, hey you've been healing somebody. You healed a leper on a Sunday, on, or on a Sabbath, pardon me, right? It's like, it's like they pop up everywhere. And um, I don't know if you've seen the, the TV series, The Chosen. Anybody here seen it? You guys heard of it? Yeah, it's sort of, right? And I, I noticed in there, too, that the Pharisees, I mean, it's take the creative license, right? But the Pharisees pop out at you. Most people have these dark sort of gray drab clothes and uh, some of the wealthier people, the tax collectors have colors and stuff like that. The Pharisees, they have their, their headdress and their shawls and that. And you can always pick them out. And I'm just sort of imagining a society where you're walking around and you're trying to do all the things of the law. And again, way beyond the Ten Commandments, you've got the whole Mishnah and the whatever, the Gemara and all these, right? And you've got these Pharisees that are always looking out with their sharp eyes, checking out, make sure everyone's following the law. And as soon as you didn't follow the law, hey, you got to come and, you know, see me at the temple later. We got to sacrifice something, right? I mean, can you imagine living under that sort of um, oppression? I, 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 certainly there was a sense of oppression there. And in that sense, the Jews were, were slaves to the law the way that this was enforced increasingly pointed away from a relationship with God, God wanting this relationship with the people, and it kept pointing towards a religiosity, right? It kept pointing to a relationship that people would have with God where the only way they could have that relationship was if they checked all the boxes. You got to do all this and do all that and don't walk more than this many paces on the Sabbath and don't cook your food this way. And so it was all about religiosity and it pointed away from the relationship with the Lord. But it pointed to the good news, which is the coming of a Redeemer King who would bring a new kingdom to satisfy that law. You know, again, I just wanted to mention here too, like the, the you guys remember the story of Eli and his two sons. Eli was a priest in the Old Testament and his two sons, I forget, but they, they were priests, um, but they misused their office in the priesthood, right? They, they misused it and abused it and they would uh, take advantage of people that came to the temple to offer sacrifices. And so um, it was certainly possible with humans as priests to corrupt the office of the priesthood. Um, I just want to read together Hebrews 7, um, verse 18 to 28. So on the theme of people never quite doing enough to measure up to God, they would always fail and they would always need to go back and make new, new sacrifices. In Hebrews 7 verse 18 we read, But the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. 
for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus became the guardian of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, who is blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day after day. I'm adding that there. He does not need to do this. He, and he does not need to sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once when he offered himself. Pardon me. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as a high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So there, right, it talks about how the old law, the Old Testament law, was weak. It was conducted by weak people, the priests. The priests would expire. They would continually have to consecrate new priests because the priests were human. They would pass away. They would have to consecrate new priests. They would have to continually offer sacrifices for the priests' own sins and for the priests of the people. It was this repetitive, repetitive cycle, um, but it had no, it, it did not have the ability to forgive the sins. And again, the law was not able to justify to make right with God to those who observed it. Uh, if you go over to Galatians 2, verse 16. We read, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law because no one observing the law will be justified. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Right? So if the Old Testament law, if all that worked, if all the sacrifice of bulls and goats and animals and going through all these rituals, if that was effective, if that worked, then why do we need Christ? Hey, just keep sacrificing away and get priests and, right? But he's saying here, that was ineffective. That is why Christ had to come. In Matthew 5, verse 20 says, uh, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Wow, right? So he's telling this to a crowd of people that are, you know, like I just talked a minute ago, right? They're surrounded by these Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they look perfect. They've got their clean clothes on. They're always doing the right thing. They probably always held their hands like this in a pious sense of prayer. They probably muttered their prayers on the street corners, right? They were considered perfect in the eyes of the people from the outside. And Jesus says, unless you guys can be better than those guys, which are supposedly perfect, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the point is that it might be possible to look perfect on the outside, whether it's how you dress or how you talk, and you could even say, well, I don't, you know, I don't murder and steal and commit adultery and I pay my taxes and I help the poor. On the outside, it's possible to, and I drive the speed limit, right? 
Um, it might be possible to appear perfect on the outside to others, right? But Jesus talks about what's happening in here. He talks about the condition of our heart. And it's impossible to not have that attitude against others where you're angry, you're hateful, you lust, you're jealous, you're proud, right? And Jesus talks about our sinful condition that makes us want to do that. And so only through Jesus' sacrifice we can be made perfect, not through our own effort, right? You can try all along, but you can't do it on your own. So with Jesus' sacrifice, his righteousness is imputed to us. That's a good word to know, imputed, right? That's it's like taking a coat off and put on us, and now we're considered more righteous than the Pharisees if you trust in Jesus as Savior. So there is hope. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 5. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship, if it could. Would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And so there's the hope. There's the good news, right? The law was a shadow. It's kind of like a, a, a movie trailer with a spoiler alert. It's like, hey, something's going to happen. We're not going to tell you the whole thing yet, but it's going to happen, right? And here's a hint that something good is going to happen. Again, the writer speaks of these repeated sins over and over in the blood of bulls and lambs that are just, they're just not effective at taking away the sins. Again, if they had worked, they would have just said, hey, we're good, we're done, right? But they had to do them over and over. Um, now, the last part of that, in Hebrews uh, 10, verse 5, Jesus says, sacrifices and burnt offerings you did not desire, right? Here speaking of the law. So he's saying, these sacrifices and burnt offerings are not sufficient to appease the Lord. And then he comes and says, but a body prepared for me. He, and, and Jesus offers himself. He says, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. This is Jesus quoting Psalm 40, verse 6 to 7, when he quotes this passage. Right. So again, prophetically, when Psalms are written, it's pointing towards this time where Jesus would come, get rid of the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and say, I'm going to step in that place. I also want to tie this back to the people at the mall or on the street corner who say, oh, Jesus was just a great charismatic preacher who walked the earth and he was, you know, up there with Muhammad and Gandhi and all these kind of, you know, great preachers and religious teachers. What kind of a crazy person would teach a message that culminated in, oh, we need a sacrifice. Those sacrifices aren't sufficient. 
we need a human sacrifice. You have called for a body. I'll do it, right? This doesn't make sense. Nobody would do that. So, again, I just wanted to point that out because I think those are the people that we run into when we, you know, we talk to people about Jesus at, at work and their friends and our neighbors. A lot of people believe something about Jesus, but they don't believe that he's the true son of God. And so I think we need to be armed with, with uh, good, good, uh, good arguments and, and uh, be able to, um, to, um, to defend our faith. So anyway, the, the law is futile. I think we're, we're starting to understand that point, right? The law is futile, but it did have a purpose which pointed us to the need for a savior. Again, it's reminding people, you can't do this on your own. You can't do this by your own human effort. You will need someone who is perfect, who can perfectly obey this law and fulfill the sacrifice. And so when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law. He gives us freedom from the law. Jesus said, I am come to fulfill the law, right? So the law demanded perf perfection and purity and uh, impossible for us, but Jesus was able to do it. So what would you need to satisfy the law? Well, the one to fulfill the law needed to qualify as the Messiah, right? So we talked about some of these prophecies already, and there's, there's hundreds of them. And Jesus came and he fulfilled these prophecies. Again, he wasn't just some guy. He met specific qualifications. He came at a certain time, virgin birth, all those things, right? He qualified as the Messiah. To fulfill the law, he had to satisfy the moral law. And for the moral law, you needed to have someone who was morally perfect, right? Someone who um, exudes moral perfection. Jesus had a perfect life. In 1 Peter uh, 2, verse 22, it says, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Again, Peter, quoting Isaiah 53, verse 9, right? Old Testament prophecy, quoted New Testament. It's all coming together. Um, also needed the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Right? That's another thing that we need to uh, fulfill the law, the shedding of blood. Again, we talked about the sacrifices before and how blood was spilled and people would recognize that as being the payment for their sin. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, it says, without blood, there is no remission of sin. Of course, on the cross, Jesus shed his own blood. Again, what else do we need to fulfill the law? A sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. What did uh, John the Baptist say when he was baptizing and Jesus came from afar? He said, look, there's the Lamb of God, right? He identified him. Jesus symbolically comes in as that Lamb, and he's the perfect Lamb. And again, like I noted earlier in the Passover prescriptions, right? Not a bone of his would be broken. And when Jesus was crucified, um, often when they crucified someone at the end, they were, you know, they're like all the soldiers wanted to go home and like celebrate the Sabbath. And if people weren't dying fast enough, they would come and kick in their kick in their shins and basically break their bones so they would just hang by their arms and suffocate to death. But Jesus had already died, right? He was pierced in the side to prove that he was dead. So uncharacteristically, Jesus' bones were not broken when he was crucified. Um, very interesting. The law required 
a meeting place between man and God. So to Moses, God had prescribed the tabernacle. Again, very specific rules regarding separations in the holy place and the curtain and where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And this would be the place where the people could go to meet God, right? They wouldn't have a prayer circle in the kitchen before church because that's not where you could meet God. You had to go to the tabernacle to meet God. Later, um, they would build a temple, and even there, that was the place where the people could meet God because that was the symbolic meeting place with God. So when Jesus came, he said um, to the priests, he said uh, in John 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, right? And the Pharisees are going, what are you, nuts? It took us like... 46 years to build this temple. Like, what are you going to, like, look at these cut stones. They had to be imported from over here and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his own body, which is the sacrifice for us, which he is the temple where we worship, right? His body was broken for us. And in three days, he rose from the dead. It was restored. And that's through his body, his broken and restored body, we can enter the presence of God. The law, in order to fulfill the law, required a mediator between God and man, right? So the people couldn't just come to God and say, um, God, I have a request for you. Um, I'm going to the doctor next week. I hope the news is good. No, they had to go to a mediator. People couldn't say to God, God, forgive me for my sin because I have fallen short of you. No, they had to go to the priest at the temple, go through the mediator, intermediate right mediator means like in the middle the guy in the middle the middleman and that needed to be a high priest someone who who was considered perfect enough consecrated enough to enter into the presence of God on on your behalf the law stipulated um, that only Levites could be priests, right? We talked about the law given to Moses, and in Leviticus, God says the Levites, only the Levites can be priests. Well, Jesus, interestingly, as a high priest, and he symbol, he's symbolically, he becomes our high priest. He was not from the tribe of the Levites. He was from, as we heard earlier, from the stump of Jesse, which was from the tribe of Judah, right? So the tribe of Judah is not the tribe of Leviticus. And so um, because there is a new law, that Jesus brings, the new covenant. He's a new priest, which comes from a new order of priests, not from the, not from the clan of the, of the Levites, but from the, the clan of Judah. A new sprig he's brought out from the, from the stump of Jesse, it said, right? And since we have a new high priest, we require a new law. In Hebrews 7, verse 12, it says, for where there is a change in priesthood, there must also be a change in law. Jesus, so therefore, becomes our high priest. He, he intercedes on our behalf, right? So when we trust in Jesus, we can go through him as our intermediary. We can go directly to God the Father, right? That's why we can pray as we're driving, in the kitchen, anywhere. We can access God. We don't have to go through a special place to a special person. We have access to God the Father. Isn't that a wonderful, um, isn't that a wonderful thing to have? Um, in fact, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, it says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law. But then in, Gala in Galatians, Galatians 3, verse 13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree, right? So Jesus hung on that wooden cross symbolized by a tree so that we could be free from the curse of the law and the curse of the sin and death. So just like that building permit that I mentioned earlier, the old law has been fulfilled. It's no longer necessary. It's done. And we now live in a new era of freedom. The Old Testament laws were designed to set us apart, to set apart the nation of Israel. But the new law is also for us as Gentiles, right? We can come to God the Father directly through Jesus. Jesus brings about a new way of looking about the law, right? So he said to the, gen to the um, not to the Gentiles, to the Pharisees, um, he talks about how the food laws, for example, were no longer necessary. He says, are you also, so this is in Mark 7, verse 18 to 20, if you want to follow along, if you're really quick with your page flipping. Um, it says, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile them since it enters his heart, but his stomach and is then expelled? And so Jesus declared all foods unclean, right? The, the Jews had a lot of laws regarding food purity and what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And Jesus says, eh, that doesn't really matter. That stuff just goes through you. It's what's in your heart and comes out of you. That's what defiles you. And so by that, Jesus declared the Old law. Uh, Old Testament food law is no longer valid for us, right? Um, even Jesus broke a lot of these laws when he uh, healed on the Sabbath and when he gleaned, you know, they walked through the, his disciples walked through the fields and they picked some of the grain heads, right, on the Sabbath, which weren't, you weren't supposed to do, right? So he broke a lot of these old laws. And by doing that, he said, they're not, that's, that's not really what this is about. I'm bringing a new kingdom with new laws. The Old Testament had detailed purification rituals and the new covenant that Jesus brings to us speaks of inner purity and having a clean heart. In Matthew 23, and again, there's so many of these Jesus butting heads with the Pharisees, right? Because they're all about, we got to follow the law. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you're sort of missing the point, right? And so here he says to the Pharisees, he says to them, you guys, and I'm going to paraphrase here, right? You guys are like tombs that are all nice and tidy and clean on the outside, have a beautiful appearance on the outside, but inside you're full of rottenness, rotten bones, right? You guys are like whitewashed tombs, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He's making the point that it doesn't matter what the outside is like. It matters what's in the heart. Similarly, the law demanded circumcision of the flesh, right? There's a lot of, uh, I think in Galatians, there's a lot of the sort of argument, you know, Paul talking about, trying to argue with the Jews how, you know, all this stuff about circumcision. It's a physical cutting of the flesh. But Jesus talks about, no, we don't need that. You need to cut out your heart, not physically, but you need to circumcise your heart. We need to cut out the things of our heart that are hard and calloused and dirty and selfish. Jesus, through his perfect life and his resurrection, he invalidates the old written law, but instead he writes his, his law on our hearts and gives us the power to follow that law through the Holy Spirit. In Romans 7, uh, there's almost the whole chapter, we're not going to read it this morning, but it talks about how we died to the power of the law 
when we died in Christ, by being united with him, when he was raising, when Jesus was raised from the dead, we died to the power of the law, the old law, and we've been released from it, and we can now serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Romans 8, verses uh, 1 to 4. I'm just going to read from here. And again, this will be a familiar verse to anyone who's been around here for a while. Right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do, it, and Pardon me. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The breaking of the old law is a consequence, right? The law stipulates a consequence, and that consequence is death. If you believe in Jesus that is no longer your consequence because we've been set free from that and, and, and we now have the power through Jesus' death to, to be saved. We, we don't have to live according to the law in the, anymore. We can live according to the Spirit. Jesus offers a new, a new kingdom, not like the ones where the Old Testament Pharisees could manage the law through external means, but... Jesus' kingdom is one that requires a change of the heart, right? And Jesus said, for example, do not hurt. I mean, he said, the old law said, do not murder. Jesus says, I'm telling you, do not hate. Because if you hate a brother, it's as good as murder. The old law said, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you already look at a woman lustfully, you're committing adultery. So Jesus is talking about the condition of the heart, not about all these other things that someone else could check off a checklist, right? So, again, if you go to the mall and you ask all these different people, all the different religions of the world and what they all mean, I think you'll find that all the relig religions of the world, they all point to some sort of work that the individual has to do to reach a higher level of karma or whatever the case may be, right? It's all about works. In our faith, we believe that Jesus did all the work for us because we could never do it, right? No matter how hard we try, we could never do it. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Isn't that what it says? Not through works so that no one can boast. All we need to do is have faith in him and, and the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Why is that significant, right? Why are we talking about this at Christmas? At Christmas, we talk about the first coming of Jesus, the first advent, so to speak, the first time he came. And, you know, as, as, as fun as, as Christmas is and the, and the symbolism that goes around it, and, and um, you know, many of us who grew up with little books and things like that, and, and with kids, it's always there's cute little animals, and there's a cute little baby in a manger, and there's cute little chubby-cheeked cherubs singing in the... You know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and there's sort of a, a cuteness around it, or, or the story is kind of infantized, ch made childlike, whatever that word is, right? We think of Jesus as this little baby, and it's kind of cute, and the little kids love, the, you know, 
the, the ceremonies around Christmas, but we forget that on the second advent, the second coming of Christ, it's not going to be like that, right? This is the king of the universe coming back, and he will execute judgment. He's coming back as a mighty king, fierce, on a horse, with an army. It'll be terrifying for those who don't believe him, right? Um, in Revelations 19, verse 11 to 16, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Right? So even though Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, which are bejeweled crowns, signifying authority. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, right? I think we forget that when we see the little baby in the manger. We forget that this is the king of the universe who one day will come back and there will be wrath and consequence to those who don't obey him and haven't given their life to him. Perhaps there's someone here today who, who's beaten down by, by your sins and you still feel like, you, you know, even though you've given your life to Jesus, you just, don't, you just don't measure up, you just don't feel like you qualify. Maybe you still struggle with ongoing sin. You know, maybe there's something in the past that's just so, so big that you just can't, you just can't imagine how Jesus could ever forgive you for that. But we need to know Jesus has forgiven you, right? His work is finished. Through his sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, he's made all things new. He's made us perfect in the, in the sight of God. You know, maybe there's someone who's been coming to church and you've been coming to church all your life and you do good things, you obey the rules of the road and you help shovel, shovel the neighbor's driveway and help the other kid with math and you're just a good person. You know, maybe someone from a Catholic background who's just gone through all the prescribed rituals and gone to mass at the right times and said the right prayers, right? All in an effort to to appeal to God. Look, God, I'm a good person. I've done all the right things, right? And you need to know that you don't need to do all those things because Jesus has done all those things. So all Jesus asks for is not all those works, but he just asks for a broken and contrite heart where we repent and we give up our efforts to God and to Jesus and we say, look, we can't do this on our own, but thank you for doing it for us. That's all you need to stand before the King of Kings. When he comes back, right, on that white horse, you don't need to be terrified of him, but you can say, hallelujah, we're going home. So, amen to that.